Hey, good morning. Good to see you. I, uh, I'm excited for this morning. We are in the very last sermon. Can you hear me through the speakers or just my voice? Through the speakers. Through the speakers. Okay. Uh, we're in the very last sermon of, there we go, our series in Genesis. I've really enjoyed just spending the last eight weeks uh, looking at some of the characters uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, we've looked at Abraham and Hagar and Esau and others. And I've been stirred personally just to see their stories of faith and how God used them and their imperfections. But talking of their imperfections, a big question to answer this morning, which is how can we change? How can we be different? We look at ourselves day to day and think, I wish I was someone else. How can we change? These aren't questions that are unique to Christians. You might be a non-Christian and you'll be asking those same kind of questions. How can I become the kind of person that I really want to be? Take a glance at the Amazon self-help bestsellers list. You'll see titles like this, The Miracle Morning, Six Habits That Will Transform Your Life. The 5am Club, Own Your Morning, Elevate Your Life. How to Be Your Own Therapist my favorite, bizarrely, in third place on the Amazon bestsellers list for self-help is a book by Kevin Hart, of all people. In the quest for a transformed life, we, for some reason, turn to small comedians, to finance gurus, and to habit adjustment. You look in all the wrong places to answer this question. How can I change? The number of these books, though, suggest that none of these techniques are working at all. We're more discontent with ourselves than ever. We at the same time say, I just want to be myself, I want to be true to who I am. And at the same time we say, who I am at the core isn't good enough. I know I need to change. You've probably felt this on a personal level this week. I find myself deeply frustrated at who I am on a day-to-day basis. I'll level with you. I wish I was more peaceful. I wish I was more gentle and loving and bold and just. I wish I was more like Jesus. It's probably your experience too. There's a chasm between who we are and who we were made to be, who we want to be. And the question is, how can we bridge that gap? How can we be formed into the image of Jesus? All that to say, last week, Matty Moe showed us at the beginning of Jacob's life that he was a cheat. He grasped the heel of his brother in the womb. He stole Esau's birthright, and then he stole Esau's inheritance. As he was preaching, I thought, Jacob reminds me of me. He's a little bit of a cheat. He's a bit selfish. He always wants to get his own way. That's the Jacob of Genesis 27. He was a cheater chosen by grace. And the chapter ends, we didn't see this, with his mum, Rebecca, so scared that Esau was going to murder him that she sends him into the wilderness. Says, I can't lose both my sons in one day. Go into the wilderness and hide. But look quickly with me, if you have a Bible, at Genesis 33. This is seven chapters and decades later. Jacob hasn't seen Esau since that fateful day where he dressed up as him and pretended to be him, stole his inheritance. And now Jacob gets word that Esau is on the way to meet him. Verse 3 of chapter 33. 
says that Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. And then glance down to verse 8. So Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession that I have met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. Esau replied, I have enough, brother, keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. These don't read like the same two characters. Jacob, all these years later, bows down at his brother's feet and honors him. The Jacob of Genesis 27 is a cheat. He's insecure. He's a bit rash. He operates out of fear, not love. But the Jacob of Genesis 33, he operates from love. He's secure in who he is. And so he can honor his brother when he finally meets him again all these decades later. He has changed. This chosen cheater has now changed. And so the singular question we're going to answer this morning is this. How in the world did Jacob change like this? What could have gone on in this man's life that formed him so profoundly into the image of Jesus? And then by extension, how can I change? How can you change? What lessons does Jacob's life offer us as we wrestle with these questions? Does Jacob's life give us a more compelling vision than self-help? Well, the answer is yes. Here's what we'll see. True change comes from God alone. That's what Jacob's story shows us. God becomes real to Jacob as he's cast into the wilderness and as he lives the rest of his life and he is transformed. So we're just going to look at two major events in Jacob's life. The first one is this kind of grace encounter he has with God at Bethel in Genesis 28. The second, his grappling with God on the banks of the river Jabbok in Genesis 32. And as we go, we're just going to pull some threads. We'll see if we can't put some meat on the bones of these questions. How can we change? How can we be sanctified, formed, renewed into the image of Jesus? So turn with me then to Genesis 28, if you have your Bible. And we'll look at this first encounter that Jacob has with God. Beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, 
although the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. First thing we see about change is that change begins with grace. The grammar of this text suggests that Jacob is blown away by the grace of God. Remember for context that he's just stolen his brother's inheritance. He's just been on the end of a death threat from Esau. And he's now in the wilderness alone, doesn't know what's going to come next for him. He's probably not feeling very good about himself. He's in the rock bottom moment of his life. And then God shows up. And the language doesn't kind of come through in English, but the passage in Hebrew repeatedly uses the word hene. This word means behold, but it kind of has the force of a word like wow. A kind of astonished amazement. So we could read verse 12 of this passage like this. Jacob dreamed and wow, a stairway and wow, angels of God and wow, Yahweh standing beside him. There's a kind of urgent amazement in the text when Jacob realizes that God himself has approached, he's blown away at the rock bottom moment of Jacob's life, the God of his ancestors approaches. And amazingly, he doesn't approach to condemn. He approaches to repeat the promise he gave to Abraham. As though to say, no matter who you are or what you do, I have chosen you and you are mine, remember. This cheating fugitive is given a promise. His descendants, this guy who's just stolen everything from his brother, his descendants will inherit the earth. This is surprising, overwhelming grace. Jacob doesn't even deserve the attention of God in this moment, let alone the promise of God. But as we think about Jacob changing See, this isn't just a grace that pardons Jacob's sin. It's a grace that comes to Jacob ruthlessly committed to him. God comes to us in grace ruthlessly committed to us as well. Not just trying to forgive our sins and then see how we do next time. But coming saying, I am the Lord your God. You have not outran my promises. John Piper says this, he says, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. And that's the order we see all through the biblical story. Abraham, Paul makes this point in detail, is given the promise before he's called to circumcision. Moses and the Israelites are rescued from Egypt before God gives them the law on Mount Sinai. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The grace of God is always the ground zero rock on which our transformed lives are built. First comes grace, then comes the call to live in the light of God. Here's what that means this morning, Christian or non-Christian. If you're desperate to change, please don't go first to habit formation. 
please don't go first to behavior modification. Jesus had a word for people who cleaned up their behavior while their hearts still weren't right with God. He called them whitewashed tombs. Shiny on the outside and full of bones on the inside. We need to come to God first. We need to receive a new heart first. We can't paper over the cracks. We have to allow God to come to us, forgive us, heal us, regenerate our hearts, to receive us and adopt us as his children. That's first. Then we go forward. Then we take the next step into a transformed life. Jacob was not ready before this encounter to change. Grace comes to him, not just as pardon, but as power. Change begins with grace. In fact, change is grace from first to last. The God who formed you from the dust sees you in your sin and invites you to come as you are. I thought Matty so helpfully showed us that last week in Jacob's story. Come as you are. He loves you that much. He loves you far too much to let you stay as you are. Change begins with grace. But second, change is rooted in encounter. Notice what God offers to Jacob here. He isn't just given information. He isn't primarily given something to do to make it up to God. And it wouldn't surprise us if this passage actually contained an angel coming to Jacob saying, I want to let you know that God told me he pardons your sin and you still have his promises. That wouldn't feel out of place. But God surprises us. What happens to Jacob is encounter. Look at the first thing God says to him when he approaches. Verse 13. I am the Lord. God reveals himself to Jacob as a person, face to face. No mediation, no angel standing between them. Yahweh approaches Jacob, not at a distance, kind of beckoning him to climb the ladder into heaven, but up close and personal. God descends the ladder himself. That's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? God who descends from heaven to live among us. That's what we see in the Holy Spirit, a God who descends from heaven to live in us. This is who God is. He's the kind of God who enters the fray, who wants to enter into a loving encounter with us, not just a lecture tossed down from heaven. Jacob meets with God directly. And you may never have experienced it before, but you and I, because of Jesus, who identified himself in John with this ladder, he said, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. And because of him, we see God face to face. We can encounter God, not from a distance, but up close and personal. I need to be honest with you. I love theology. I love thinking about God. But all the thinking about God, unless it is accompanied with true encounter with God, is a waste of time. It has no power to transform us. One of my favorite novels is called Till We Have Faces. 
It's a retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. And in the novel, the main character, Maya, is angry with the gods. They've stolen away her sister, Psyche, and she demands answers from them. And the novel kind of meanders and then cultivates with her in this courtroom, having it out with the gods, telling them how she really feels. She cries out how unjust her life has been, how bitter she has become about all they've done to her. She's angry, but she realizes they won't give her an answer. The first time I read the final scene in this book, it made me bawl my eyes out. It's one of my favorite passages in any book. As she kind of mourns her life, she has a vision. She realizes how bitter she has been, how small her perspective is, how angry and unfair and unjust her life has been. And she suddenly sees life from God's perspective. And the author doesn't tell you this, but it seems like she has an encounter with Jesus, the way she describes this man that she sees. And the book ends with these words. Remember she said the gods will give her no answer. She says at the end of the book, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you give no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer could suffice? You are yourself the answer. That is the conclusion we come to when we have an encounter with God. Not, I figured it out. I figured out what the, what the meaning of all this was. All questions fade away before his face. Bitterness begins to fade away. Sin begins to fade away. God is himself the answer. See, Jacob needed more than information. He needed more than to come before heaven's courtroom and receive an answer. He needed to see the face of God. Change is rooted in encounter. Maya in the novel is changed as she encounters God for the first time. Jacob is changed as he encounters God. We too can only be changed by encountering God. All of that means that we need to structure our lives in a way that opens us up to encounter with God regularly. And it's all quite simple. We very simply just order our lives around the goal of being with Jesus. Some thinkers call them spiritual disciplines. We can call them practices. Whatever we call them, there are some things we need to do in order to live the kind of life that puts us in a position that we might see God face to face. But Lewis, I thought change began and ended with grace. How have we got so quickly to what we do? Well, Dallas Willard might help us here. He says this. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. None of this suggests that we need to earn encounter with God. God approaches us in grace alone. But he calls us to arrange our lives, to put in the effort to meet him soul to soul face to face. To live in grace means to leave behind an attempt to earn anything from God, but it doesn't mean leaving behind an effort to live in the light of God's grace. So as a church, that means we need to help each other. We need to help each other make prayer. Not just asking God for things, but meeting God, being with God in prayer. The highest priority of our life together. Tangibly means 
We help each other. We keep each other to account that we wouldn't grab our phones first thing in the morning, but that we'd read a psalm and pray instead. It means we help each other to stop filling every moment of silence with noise. We pursue together moments that are marked by the presence and peace of God, like this Tuesday, not Wednesday, (laughs) when we're going to pursue that together. I'm going to pursue the presence of God together. That is not because churches should pray. It's because we can only find spiritual life as you pursue the face of God together. The poet Mary Oliver once wrote that attention is the beginning of devotion. And Jesus of Nazareth agreed with her. He said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. What we set our minds on, that is what we become like. Changed life comes from abiding in the person of Jesus. It comes from encounter. It's the second thing we see from Jacob's life. And he does change. So at the end of this short encounter, he takes this stone and he sets up an altar and he worships. The heart of Jacob is just a little bit less calloused today than it was yesterday. Why? Because he's experienced the grace of God and he's seen the face of God. He's inching towards becoming the kind of person that he will become by God's grace. But the story doesn't end there. We need to fast forward to Genesis 32 because Jacob is not finished. If you go home today and you read the chapters between these two stories, you'll see Jacob's life stays dark. It stays grisly. These are chapters marked by sin and adultery and abuse and confusion and fear. Jacob leaves Bethel changed, but not really transformed. He needs God to do more than just show up and speak to him. He needs God to manhandle him into holiness. That's what God does. Look at Genesis 32 with me, uh, beginning of verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. All right, everything we've said so far is good news. God comes to us in grace. God wants us to meet him face to face. But we're about to come to a disappointing conclusion. The context of this story is this. Jacob is terrified before this happens. What was it that led Jacob to be alone this night on the banks of the river Jalok? Well, this story precedes the story we read earlier. He's about to meet his brother Esau for the first time. Jacob's fear of his brother is intense. He is in suffering. 
He's in anguish. And that suffering drives him towards this most transformative encounter of his life. It reminds me of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Facing the most terrifying reality, he was driven towards God in prayer. Jacob faces the reality of his brother, scared he's going to be murdered, scared of what's about to face him. He is driven into solitude on the banks of a river. And here's the conclusion that you might not like. Suffering is catalyzed, change, I'm so sorry, is catalyzed by suffering. Change doesn't just come to us when everything is great. Change is most powerful in moments of suffering. Jacob has mostly moved on from his encounter at Bethel. He's slipped back into his old ways. He's crafty and sneaky again. But now he realizes he needs God. He needs God. He's so scared that he's forced into solitude. Charles Spurgeon famously said that he had learned to kiss the wave that threw him against the rock of ages. The wave of fear has just thrown Jacob directly into the rock of ages. His terror has found him encountering God again. Suffering is the catalyst for this confusing and life-changing night for Jacob. This shouldn't surprise us. In James 1, James writes this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds. How could that be? Because he writes, trials lead to perseverance. The Apostle Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. How can the writers of the New Testament be so glib about suffering? Because they see in Christ an example of this truth, that suffering produces something in us. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. I read a while ago about the process of winemaking in difficult environments. And obviously the quality of the wine is directly related to the quality of the grapes, which are directly related to the quality of the ground. So how do you get a delicious wine in an environment that is harsh and unpredictable? Well, the answer was counterintuitive. I read that to make sure the roots of the vine go deep, a winemaker doesn't artificially water the vines at all. See, if the vine gets watered, it gets tricked. Its roots don't go deep. It thinks everything is fine. I don't need to get deep into the soil. The vines stay shallow, and the end product is a kind of small and tasteless grape. To get good fruit, they need to let the vine plunge its roots deeper into the darkness. 
It's not until they're forced deep into the dark soil that they can bear good fruit. Something similar is true of us as Christians. If we live a life where we just continue to artificially water ourselves, where we pretend that everything is fine, where we ignore our suffering in this world, our fruit will be small and tasteless. We won't bear the kind of fruit that we are called to as Christians. We never experience the life-giving soil of deep dependence on Jesus. So the, the peculiar path to being formed into the image of Jesus that Jacob discovered that we need to discover is to walk with God through pain and suffering. It's not to live a comfortable life that God fits into on the margins where we find room for him. It's to ask genuinely, what suffering am I going through and how does God want to work deep change in me through this? It's to not rush through pain, but to allow God to take our roots and plunge them into the suffering of this world. It's to thank God for the storms of life when they throw us onto the rock of ages. Jacob's suffering drives him to this riverside wrestling match. And that teaches us our final lesson. Change is worked out by grappling with God. Prophet Hosea, years after this event, he recalls it. Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4. The prophet says, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. The pattern of Jacob's life was a pattern of struggle. He struggled in the womb with Esau. And now the crescendo of his spiritual life comes as he struggles with God. It encourages me that Jacob's most prominent and difficult to budge sin is exactly where God meets him to transform him. Wrestles with him. He wrestles this sin out of him. And it's, it's so interesting how Hosea characterizes this whole thing. He says, Jacob overcame God, but he did so by weeping and begging for his favor. This proud, selfish, scheming sinner finds himself broken at last. And that apparently is victory for him. It's not his loss. That's his gain. On the banks of the Jabbok, J Jacob will just not let go of God. He's broken. He's got nothing left. He's terrified. And he will not let go. Strangely, God seems to plead with him to let go as he begins to see the sunrise. I was helped this week by reading a comment that one writer made on this passage. He observed this, he said, God is not the one endangered by the daylight, it is Jacob. To see God in the full light of day would have meant death for Jacob, but he is willing to risk death for the sake of divine blessing. I wonder how committed you are to your spiritual formation. How highly does it rank on your list of priorities? How far are you willing to go to see God form Christ in you? Will you be like Jacob? you go to any length to pursue more of the life of God? Jacob will not let go. 
book of Hebrews says the work of Jesus is to present you pure and blameless before God the Father. That's his mission. That's why he came. He wanted to offer you up to God, a pure and blameless offering with no sin left in you. That's the joyful vision that drove Jesus to the cross. That's what he saw in Gethsemane. That's what let him go. He was so afraid to go to the cross, but the joy that was set before him was you. Do you have the same kind of concern that Jesus has for the good of your soul? Or are you passive? Is it incidental to what you really want in life? Is the deepest desire of your heart that you might become like Jesus? Or is this just a passive thing that will happen over time? Jacob will not let go of God. I wonder whether you will beg him, whether you plead with him, whether you'll partner with him, whether you'll wrestle with him so that Christ might be formed in you. And Jacob doesn't seem to get anything good in return. He gets a broken hip. Something upside down about all of this. Imagine the scene as the sun rises, your Jacob's family, where's he been all night? And here he comes limping down the beach with a dislocated hip, wincing in agony. And yet he says, I'm more blessed than I've ever been. I'm ready to face Esau. What happened? God put my hip out of joint. I'm ready. It doesn't feel, it doesn't look like the image of a man that's just been blessed by God. Well, his body is broken. He's spiritually more alive than ever. God has wrestled self-reliance out of him. See, that's the kind of culmination of spiritual renovation, is that your self-reliance would be removed. And in its place would come a deep reliance on God. God wants to transform our kind of happy-go-lucky, running faith for a limping faith. For a faith that has been broken. For a faith that has met with God and had its self-reliance knocked out of it. For a faith that recognizes there is nothing in me that can accomplish the will of God. And for that very reason, I will head into this meeting with Esau with joy. For that very reason, I will strive forward in life and serve God because this isn't about me. I wonder what area of self-reliance in your life that you need God to wrestle from you. Which proverbial hip does he need to put out of joint? For you to leave here limping towards genuine freedom. I know you want this because I want it too. You want Jesus to only change you in ways that are easy to manage. Me too. He doesn't offer that. He doesn't offer it. He's not content to look at you a half-changed woman or a half-changed man. He can't. He loves you too much. He will in his love break you down to build you up again. In Jacob's case, his wound was God-inflicted. 
and that wind was somehow for his good. We need to allow God to have his way with our hearts. To wound us so it might limp towards genuine transformation. So that we may limp towards a faith that has allowed God to tear even the most painful sins from our hearts. Jacob was transformed. The cheater of Genesis 27 becomes Israel in Genesis 32. A scheming teenager becomes the great father of a nation. Can I change in this way? Can you? Well, it starts with grace. If you've never done it before, come to Christ and receive a new heart. It's rooted in encounter. Organize your life around the presence and the power of God. It's catalyzed by suffering. Don't resent what God might want to do to the difficulty of your life. And it is worked out in grappling with God. Cling to him and let him break you so that he might rebuild you into the image of God. Should we pray together?